Good morning. There are Bibles in the back if you do not have one. Um, we gladly um, get you a Bible. Um, if you need a Bible, you can go in the back. I'm going to dismiss the kids. You can grab a Bible and come back down and uh, sit down. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 8. So I wanted to dismiss the kids. Uh, the kids can go to Children's Church and um, you guys can grab a Bible. We are in Acts chapter 18. We are, we are back in the book of Acts together. Chapter 18, we just finished a series called The Gospel According to Moses. It's online. You can download it. You can podcast. You can watch the video. And now we're back in the book of Acts for the next several, at least two or three months. And then come Advent time, we're going to be doing a series called The Canticles of Christmas. Uh, Canticles is Latin for songs or hymns. And in Luke chapter 1 and 2, there are four of them. Uh, the Canticle of Mary, uh, the Song of Mary, the Canticles of the Shepherds, Simeon and Zechariah. So as we prepare for the Christmas season, we will look at those four different songs of praise in Luke 1 and 2. And although I was greatly encouraged by the uh, series Gospel According to Moses, I am happy to be back in the book of, in the, book of the Bible. And expository preaching through books is a great way to not only learn your Bibles... What we do here, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, but it helps, you, helps us to keep things in context, which gives us a much greater opportunity to get not only the right interpretation, but to hear the voice of God. God speaks in his word. He spoke in the day in which the, the, the apostles, in this case, um, and, and Luke, wrote the scripture. And we want to hear God's voice today and uh, make sure that he is speaking to us and expository preaching, as far as I'm concerned, is the best way to do that. So what I want to do this morning for a little bit is get our heads wrapped around the book of Acts. That's where we're at, chapter 18. We already did 1 through 17. And you, if you're interested in, in learning more about this study, you can always go to our website. Acts is up there, and you could follow us uh, online. Uh, let me begin by reminding you that the book of Acts is the second volume of one book, and that's very important as we interpret. The second volume of one book. The author of Acts is Dr. Luke. He's the same author as the gospel according to Luke. Paul, the apostle, calls him the beloved physician. He was a doctor. He wrote the gospel according to Luke. He wrote the book of Acts. One book, two volumes. Luke was a traveling companion with uh, uh, Paul. Okay, and if, if you were Paul and everywhere he'd go, he got beat up, he got rocks busted upside his head, he got dragged out of cities, he got beat up a lot, you would want a beloved physician with you wherever you go, okay? Luke tells us right away in chapter 1, this doctor, this highly educated doctor, said in Luke 1 that he carefully researched all his material. He interviewed eyewitnesses. He wrote down and, and, and carefully wrote down all that happened in the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus so that a man named Theophilus will have an, an orderly account, an accurate and orderly account of what Jesus did. So Luke is not by any chance not smart. He's a doctor and he's accurately eyewitnessing, you know, eyewitness, talked with people and wrote down all the things that Jesus did. In fact, in chapter 1 of Acts, Luke, Acts, it says in the first book, Luke, Gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, that's his ascension, and he commands through the Holy Spirit and to the apostles that he has chosen. So Luke says, listen, in the first book, I did all, I, I, I accurately recorded all that Jesus did, 
and taught, his life, his ministry, his resurrection, and his ascension. And now the book of Acts is a continuation of that. Some people call the book of Acts the Acts of the, of the Apostles or the Acts of the Holy Spirit. What it really is is the Acts of Christ. Jesus lived, he died, he rose, he had ministry for three and a half years, and now in the book of Acts, Luke says, here's what Jesus continues to do as he continues to love people, forgive people, redeem people through the church. So accurate look at the first century church. Acts is all about mission. We call it the spirit-empowered mission, okay? It's not advice. I'm not here giving anyone advice. It's good news. It's a big difference. It's not something that might happen. It's something that has already happened, and we make it clear and declare to you. The church in the first century, as the church today, are witnesses of retelling the story over and over again that Jesus is God who became a man, lived a perfect life, obeyed the law perfectly, fulfilled it, died as a sin, uh, for sin as a substitute, and three days later, on Sunday, he rose from the dead. That's something we declare. He didn't resuscitate. The Bible says he was resurrected. That's the mission of the church, to be witnesses, heralders. We are not to give advice. We are to declare good news. Every member of the body of Christ is on mission. Acts 1, Jesus says, now, Before you go on mission, stay in Jerusalem because the promised Holy Spirit will come. Don't go without him. Stay and wait. And what happens, we see in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit descends upon the church. People are baptized and they're empowered on mission. And Jesus says, you will go into where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and into the rest of the world. That's, you know, in your home, in your village, in your country, in your state, and then to all the nations, tongues, and tribes of the earth. The apostles and the disciples, they listen, they wait, and they're empowered. And then we see Acts unfolding, unfolding is this empowerment that the apostles and the, teach and the, and the uh, disciples and the church takes up this mission, powered by the Holy Spirit, to declare everywhere they go the good news about Jesus. Persecution comes, they scatter, and as they scatter, the Bible says they're not only uh, uh, preaching, caruso, but they're gospelizing, they're having everyday conversations, and we saw that over and over again. People were persecuted, people had left uh, um, Jerusalem, and wherever they land, they're getting jobs, they're getting you know, homes, and they're, they're working, and they're doing things, but they're gospelizing. They're sharing Christ everywhere they go. Samaria, Judea, and to the rest of the world. Later on, we see Peter in Joppa. If you remember, in Caesarea, he has his vision. In a vision, God comes to him and says, what was unclean is now clean. In other words, Peter, not everyone has to become a Jew in order to be saved. In fact, the gospel is for all nations by faith alone. Major transition in the book. And Peter's like, wow, I get it. And Cornelius comes to faith, if you remember the story. And little by little, this 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 church is growing and the people groups are, are being impacted. Jews, Greek-speaking Jews, Samaritans who are half-Jews, then the Gentiles who were God-fearers, they were proselytes, and then we get to Acts 11 and 13, we see it explode into the pagan world. And, and then we saw it very clearly in the church of Antioch, which I'm going to show you a map. Today's going to be about maps too, okay? So this little church in Antioch where these pagan, you know, uh, 
polytheistic, multiple gods. They believed in multiple gods. And this, this really diverse, multicultural nation, uh, city, comes to faith. And, and, and God, is, God is doing great things in all kinds of um, people groups. Now, it's called Working Together for the Gospel. That's our sermon. But let me show you something. If you've got a study Bible, you go in the back of your Bible, you'll see the maps this ain't all that great, but I, I just wanted to show you. Some of you maybe have heard Paul's missionary journey. You're thinking, what is that? What does it mean by a missionary journey? Well, I'm going to tell you. I'm glad you asked. Antioch is right here. Jerusalem down here, okay? Antioch, multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi um, um, financially people were different. It was just a, a conglomerate of people who had one thing in common, and that's Jesus, right? So they're in Antioch. So Paul goes to Antioch, and this church up here says, you know what, let's send them out. Let's send Barnabas and Saul, Paul, out on a mission trip. So what they do is they sent them to Asia. Well, first they sent them to Cyprus, and then he follows this course, and he goes in Asia Minor. And when he comes back to Antioch, you can see it comes back here. That would be one missionary trip. Antioch's the sending church. So when they leave, they go about preaching, planting churches, uh, people are coming to faith. He doesn't stay very long. And when he comes back to Antioch to say, hey, this is what's going on. We're kind of reporting back to the church. That would be considered one missionary trip. And the second trip, you see, is a little bit longer. If you remember, as we were going through this, they leave Antioch. They go through Asia Minor. The Holy Spirit tells them, don't go north, don't go south. And they wind up all the way here in Troas, if you remember. And then Paul has a vision. And a guy from Macedonia, Europe, says, Come. Come over, and Paul responds, of course, in obedience, and the gospel goes to Europe, second missionary trip. And Europe comes to faith, and people are, 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 are being saved and, and having trusting in Christ. And then he goes to Berea, he goes down here, he goes to Athens, which is right there, and then he goes to Corinth, is which where we'll find him today. In fact, today's text, Matthew, excuse me, Acts 18, he wraps up his second missionary trip. He comes back, he'll do the rest of the trip. He'll go from Corinth... Uh, he'll come over here, and then he'll take a trip here, and then go back up to Antioch, trip number two, okay? The third one, which we're not going to look at right now, but I just want to show you, he goes out on another trip, and he winds up in Emphasis, which is over here. Let me see if I can see it. Where are you, Emphasis? In this area. Miletus, okay? So that, so when he leaves Antioch, comes back, that's one trip. And now in Acts 18, which you, if you look there, he is... Ending his second trip and beginning his third trip. If you remember, Paul was in Athens the last time we opened up our Bibles and looked in Acts 17. He was in Athens. He was on Mars Hill. He was in a, a very, uh, the culture was very philosophical. There were a lot of religions. There was a lot of, of debate going on. It was the intellectual center of the world. Greek philosophers like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle come from Athens. He, that's in chapter 17, the famous Mars Hill. And then... He leaves Athens, and he, and this is important, when he leaves Athens, he heads over to Corinth, and he heads there alone. So when we open up our chapter, we're going to see Paul's alone. He took Timothy and, and, and Silas, um, his two protégés, and sent Timothy to Thessalonica. He sent Silas to Berea, and he goes on to Corinth. Okay, following me? So what I want to do is, as we just jump into this, I just want to draw three principles or look at this text through three headings. And it's very, very simple headings, okay? You have the team. God is building a team, and I, I really want to focus on that today more than anything. 
And then we're going to see the trouble in which they encounter. So the team, the trouble, and then the task. Team, the trouble, and the task. I've got to tell you, this passage has been an encouragement to me this week. Because as I'm, as I'm, as I'm going through this, this text, I'm thinking, our church has experienced church growth. More and more people are coming to faith. More and more people are being built up in the faith. And this kind of spoke to me this week. And I, and I want to share it with you. As we go through this and we look at the team God is building, my question for you would be today, where do you fit in? Where are you in your walk? Where are you fitting in to the body as God builds his team to go on mission with him? So keep that in the back of your mind. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand and tell me, but we can talk about it. You you can email the church or any one of the pastor elders. We would love to talk to you. And we will see in this text how God's good providence uses ordinary people. Don't read your Bible and think, I'm going to show you Paul here is going to maybe shock you today. He uses ordinary folks like you and I to bring him glory, to, to build his church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, Jesus said. So I hope you're willing to use and think through your time, your talents, your treasures for his glory while he's building his church, the team. Let's look at the team. Verses 18, chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. Well, excuse me, 1 through 4. Let me, just, let me just read that to you. After this, after he left Athens, went to Corinth, he's alone, Timothy, Silas are, are different places in Macedonia. And he found a Jew named Aquila and a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had, um, Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. For he reasoned, this is Paul, in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks, that's, that's proselytes, those are uh, uh, Greeks that are, are, are of the faith, of, of the Old Testament faith. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Now, I'm going to give you another map because I want to show you something about Corinth, okay? Corinth was a very narrow bridge of land, about three miles, three and a half miles wide, that connected the Peloponnese, Peloponnese Peninsula, Okay? I just want to show you something because this is important in Corinth. Here is, whoop, here is Corinth right here. Okay, right there. There's Corinth. Macedonia, right, Greece, Corinth, okay? Now, here's Corinth, just a close-up. The reason why I say that is in Corinth was a major, major city in Paul's day because the ships used to come from Italy area, and rather than go around either Crete or through here, which was dangerous, they would come into this port, drop off all their cargo, and the cargo would be brought through this little strip of land you could barely see. Well, you can see it here. Right here. And cross into this gulf. And what that would do is that would send the ship 200 miles, save them 200 miles, and then they would head out to Asia Minor where they would deliver the goods. Now, that may not seem a lot today in, you know, 2014, but 2,000 years ago, that would save a lot of money, a lot of time, and was very, very useful with the, with the weather and everything that was going on in Corinth. So that, that's what Corinth is all about. And, and James uh, Montgomery Boyce is a great preacher. He says, if you want to know anything about Corinth, it's just wrap it up with three C's. I'm just going to throw that at you, and we'll move on. Number one, Corinth. 
was a cosmopolitan city. Mixture of all kinds of people groups, all different races and cultures. It was a seaport, so everybody came from all different parts of the world and wound up in Corinth. So there are all kinds of people, all kinds of cultures, all kinds of ethnicity in Corinth. It was a cosmopolitan city. Number two, it was commercial. There was all kinds of goods being sold there. There was all kinds of goods being moved there. It was a very commercial city. Number three, corruption. Cosmopolitan, commercial, and corruption. In the ancient world, the name Corinthian was synonymous with sinful sexual sin. In fact, it was the center of the, of the cult, the love goddess Aphrodite. The temple of Aphrodite was the architect, one, one of the architectural wonders of the world. And there was up to 10,000 prostitutes at the temple. Right? So the commercial people would be there. The sailors would be there. This temple would be there. There was all this kind of stuff going on. Sort of like New York City to some degree. I mean, I'm from the city, but you got a lot of people, a lot of things going on, multi-religious beliefs and, and different temple worship. So it's, it, that's the kind of city. So Paul leaves the intellectual city in Athens and goes to Corinth to this, to this multilingual kind of multicultural and perverse place. But we know why he did it. Look what it says. Now he's writing to Corinth a few years later. And he tells them, this is why I came to Corinth. I came to you, brothers. He makes it very clear. Did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, but I came, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might, faith might not rest in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. Paul says, I came with the simplicity of the gospel. I came with preaching nothing else but Christ and the cross to magnify him, dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit. One of the reasons he said that is because in that day there were all kinds of itinerant preachers coming teaching philosophies and different religions and they would make their living that way and they would coerce, they would, they would play on people's uh, um, superstitions and ignorance and Paul's like, you know what? I came trusting in the power of God. I came trusting in the power of God. I am not like those other people who just show up on the shore and have a new thing to tell you. I came declaring God, declaring the gospel, trusting in the power of God. In fact, he says right here that he decided that he would, what? Get a job. He, he did not want anyone to think that he was like those rest of those guys, bringing that, that fake and false religious philosophies and ideologies. So he, what does it say? It says that he met Aquila, he met Priscilla, and it just so happens that they were there. It just so happens that they had been you know, exiled from Rome. It just so happens that they have tent-making uh, expertise together. That's the sovereignty of God. That's the providence of God. I could only imagine, think for a moment, Paul's all alone. He's been beaten, whipped, dragged out of the... All these things have happened to him. He shows up on the, in Corinth. He's all alone. And then he finds a brother and a sister who connect with him. Have you ever worked at a place of employment? Have you ever been in a school setting, 
Have you ever been within a, a larger community and you feel like you're all alone? And then, in God's good care and providence in your life, he brings somebody into your life who's a brother or a sister. 1990, I transferred up from, all, uh, from, from Westchester County. First day on the job, Green Correctional Facility. I, I, I'm in, I'm in uh, uh, what they call orientation. And I just happened to strike up a conversation about Jesus. Go figure. And there was a brother there named Daryl Weed. 24 years ago. We've been friends, close friends ever since. Brother Bob sitting here too. Close friends, brothers in Christ. They call us the God Squad because we lean on each other. We pray for one another. We talk. We are in mission living together. God is building a team of brothers and sisters, not lone rangers. You're not in this alone. Connecting people if you just look around. I mean, look here. God takes two refugees. Two, two refugees who were thrown out of Rome, who, who, who were, were kicked to the curb by their own people and sent on their merry way. They didn't give up. They didn't say, you know what? I'm leaving home. I'm leaving family. I'm getting blackballed by my own people. I'm done. They, they pick up tent making. They're like, all right, let's pick up where we left off. They're living on mission. And Paul and them get together, and, and, they're, and they're living on mission. Their hospitality, their generosity, generosity, their welcoming spirit was such an encouragement to Paul, I am sure. You know, just when you think, God can't use me, just when you think, I didn't get that job, I didn't go to that place, I didn't go to that school, I, all these things going to my life, you know what, what's the use? Sometimes you, that's when God wants to speak to your heart more clearly and say, I'm not done with you. I'm not done with you. Be encouraged. Verse 4. Paul, with the encouragement of his new friends, was working during the week, it says. He was going to the synagogues. That was his modus operandi. He would go to synagogues first, and he would declare the gospel. And when they didn't want to hear it, he would go to himself to the Gentiles. Remember, he's a religious leader. He's a Pharisee. He's a Bible scholar. So he goes to the synagogue where the Bible is read, and he tries to persuade them. And then look at verse 5. God's building his team. The protégés come back. Silas and Timothy. Remember, Silas and Timothy, those young men that, that Paul took under his wing, loved them, discipled them, lived on mission with them like a father would take a son to work. A true brother, Timothy is, a lifelong friend, a royal, uh, excuse me, a loyal companion. Silas, if you remember, chapter 15, a trusted man. They made a decision on the, on the church council. And they said, let's get Silas to deliver this letter. What an encouragement it must have been for Paul to see the two younger protégés back. And, and if you read your, 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 all your New Testament in 1 Thessalonians and in Philippians, it says that when they came to Paul, they brought two things. One, Timothy said to Paul, listen, you left me, you left me in, first, excuse me, in Thessalonica. I'm here to tell you great news. Things are going great. People are being built up in the faith. People are growing in the faith. God is doing great things. And Paul's heart is just swelled up with, with joy. He writes to them, Timothy has brought us the good news of your faith, Thessalonica. This is in 1 Thessalonica. Timothy has brought you good news, us good news of your faith and your love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and afflictions here in Corinth, we have been comforted about you through your faith and your standing fast in the Lord. 
Are you encouraged when people are growing in the faith? Are you encouraged when God is moving mightily in the hearts of people that you see? Or are you saying, that didn't happen to me? Are you a downer or are you an encourager? He also, he says in 2 Corinthians and Philippians 4, that when, when Silas came, he brought money. He brought a financial gift to Paul. Look what it says at the end of verse 5. When it came from Macedonia, brought good news of Thessalonica. You can read that in 1 S. And then the money came from Philippi. Paul, at that point, look, was occupied with the word. That, that verb, occupied with the word, means devoted to the word. If you have a New American Standard, it says devoting himself completely to the word. Let me tell you what I think happened. I think he was working his way with his regular job regularly. He got encouraged by, by Priscilla and Aquila. He's being strengthened in faith. Timothy and Silas come. They're like, listen, great news. He's more encouraged. And they said, by the way, Paul, you don't need to do tent making anymore. You go preach. He devoted himself. You know, it's so quick, and I want to make it really clear, it's so quick for us to say, look at Paul and stop, and not stop for a moment, and look at all the people that have supported him in the ministry. Have supported him in the ministry. I praise God. There are so many people here at King's Chapel that serve so faithfully and so quietly behind the scenes. It's unfortunate in many ways, but I should bring it up more, because many of you all see as me. And believe me, it's not about me. So many people, week in and week out, band practice. Um, Saturday afternoon, taking out your work for children's church. You know, as you study and you prepare, people working around the grounds, people making sure things get done, hospitality teams, get to so many people that serve so quietly and so faithfully. God is building a team. Where do you fit in? Look at verse 18. I want to jump down because I want to just look at one other thing. After this... He says, Paul stayed many days. He's talking about uh, in, in Corinth. It was about a year and a half, according to uh, verse 11. And then he took leave. He said, I'm leaving. It's been a year and a half. And he set sail for Syria. And look what it says. And with him, he took Priscilla and Aquila at Syncre, and he had his hair cut, right? He needed a haircut. No, well, he was under a vow. You could discuss that later. It was either a Nazarite vow or a Thanksgiving vow. But either way, he gets his hair cut. Verse 19, they come to emphasis. And he left them there, who? Priscilla and Aquila. But he himself went into the synagogue and began to reason with the Jews, just like he always did. When they asked him to stay a little bit longer, he said, no, I can't do it. I'll be back, in which he does. We'll look at that next week. But taking leave of them, he said, I'll return if God wills. And he set sail from Emphasis, landed in Sacria. He went uh, uh, Caesarea. He went up, which means Jerusalem, because it was up on a hill. He went up to Jerusalem, greeted the church there, and then went to Antioch, where the whole thing started. Right? That's the end of the second missionary journey and the beginning of the third. And look at verse 23. After spending time there, he departed. Okay, so he leaves Antioch and went from one place to the next throughout the region of Galatia, uh, Phrygia, strengthening all disciples. Okay, now I I want you to just catch this. Just want to say this and we'll move on. Luke, the author of Acts, just told us about. 1,500 miles of Paul on foot in one verse. Like that didn't just happen. You just read it like, oh, okay, right? No wireless, no airplanes, right? He, 1,500 miles. He just spoke in verse 23, right? It went through the region of Galatia, Phrygia, strengthening disciples. 1,500 miles like a blip in the screen. Why? I think it's to get to the next verse. Look at the next verse. 
Now a, na- now a Jew named Apollos, let's get to Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus, an eloquent man, competent in the scripture. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, fervent in spirit, spoke and taught accurately the things about Jesus. Though he knew only of the baptism of John, verse 26, he began to speak boldly in his synagogues. But when Priscilla, remember they're in Ephesus, when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Paul's doing this thing. This is what's going on in Ephesus. Apollos, follower of Jesus, didn't understand completely the things about Jesus. Right? He, he understood. He was, he was fervent in spirit, but not quite. He only knew about the baptism of John. We'll look at that more next week. So Aquila and Priscilla, who's been with Paul for so long, pull him aside and said, look, brother, let's talk about what you're saying. You're, you're almost there. We did this is some things. We just left Paul. There's just some things you need to know. And we want to help you. It's not about us. We're tent makers. It's not about us stepping up and doing the preaching. You're bold. You're accurate. You, you preach, brother. Preach it. But let me just talk to you a little about this. Do you get the big picture? Paul's all alone. Moves in with partners, Aquila and Priscilla. Deep relationships, deep partnership. He takes them to emphasis. He writes about them three times. And by the time he writes the letter to them, they're having a house church meeting. They're meeting in a house church. Then his protégés come. They're young in the Lord, but they're glad to see Paul and they bring a monetary gift. And Paul's building up Aquilus and Priscilla. Timothy is watching. And Timothy gets this letter from Paul and he says, you then, my child, my child in the faith, be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust the faithful men. In other words, what I'm doing as I'm living my life, as I'm loving you, I'm discipling you, we're living on mission together, he says, to entrust that to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, that word men in the Greek, it means men and women. So, to others. In other words, you saw so here's, here's my question as we move on. And this is the longest point, but let, let me ask you this. That's the way in which God builds teams. Giving your life, loving, serving people who will love and serve and teach others and pass it along. How are we going to do that? Are you involved in a community group? Are you looking to build one another up? Encourage one another in the faith? Considering being a protege in your community group. Talk to your leader. Maybe someday I'd like to lead a group. I got a phone call this week about some, someone like that. You know, maybe it's time for you to step out and, and work alongside somebody. We're growing. We have 12 groups. There are going to be more groups as the months go on. Are you getting involved in that? Are you living life together? Are you creating ministry projects? I, I want to say projects. I want to be careful. But, but are, is it possible to create ministry opportunities that you could bring someone who is newer in the faith along with you. Find someone in need and serve that need. That's really what I'm saying. Maybe within your community group, maybe within your neighborhood, maybe with someone within a certain team that you're on. Hey, I've got this project. Have you ever done anything outside the church? Hopefully all of us have, but if you haven't, go and serve. Number three, get involved in our children's church ministry. Invest in the lives of children. Build them up in the faith. Disciple the kids. 
Talk to Diane, one of the deaconesses, about getting involved in there, in, in that group. And not only leading them in the faith, but teaching them to trust Jesus in every area of their life. Four, join one of our teams. Like we keep saying this. Go online. Click Get Connected. Fill out the serving form. We could get you plugged in where you can serve other people. I had somebody this week, two people this week, say, you know, this is what we would like to do to serve our neighborhood. This is what we would like to do to serve our community. And not only show them God's love, but declare to them the good news about Jesus. It's a great idea. We're doing it. I don't have all the ideas. Call one of the pastors. Gather with us. Let's hear what you have to say. What has God placed on your heart? How we can serve. Listen, family, what God is looking for in many cases is not capability, but availability. Availability. It seems to give us, he seems to give us what we need when we're available to seek him, okay? But remember, when you do, there's trouble. Ministry and loving others, declaring and demonstrating the gospel is not easy. It takes a lot of time. It takes conveniences and generosity. Sometimes it takes thinking of others more than yourself. But it also brings persecution. Paul understood that. Paul followed a man who was murdered, who was crucified, who was rejected and hated, and then crucified on a Roman cross. He was persecuted. Paul understood that. Verse 6, Paul says that while he was occupied with the word and testifying that Jesus was the Christ in the synagogue, they opposed him and reviled him. That's the word blasphemed him. They, they, they talked trash about him. He shook off his garments. Your blood be on your own heads. He said, I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. This is a symbolic gesture in that day and saying, you know what? I'm innocent of whatever happens to you. Your head, your blood, your responsibility. I'm trying to show you the truth and you refuse to hear it. Sometimes, sometimes, in a very bad scenario, that's what you have to do. That's what you have to do. But he, what, this, I love this. This is, almost, this is almost funny. I mean, look at verse 7. So he left the synagogue, and he went six miles down the road. Nope. He went to a house of a man named Titius. Justice. His house was next door. So I'm not going to go far. I'm just going to be opening my doors. Everybody's going into the synagogue. I'm like, I'm here. You want to know the truth? I'm here. And, and he gets, comes to faith. The man comes to faith. And then look at verse 8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, powerful man, believed in the Lord and his whole house. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Like things are going well. Amen? And then all of a sudden the Lord comes to him in verse 9. Comes to Paul and says, uh, by the way, uh, comes to him in a vision. I don't know what I did. Can you fix that for me? Thanks. He comes to him in a vision, verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul... Chapter 18, verse 9. One night in a vision. Paul, do not be afraid. Go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed, after hearing that, he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Now, just back up a second and think this through with me. Why would God come to Paul in a vision and say those things. One, don't be afraid. Really? Paul, don't be afraid. He just left chapter 16. They beat him. They whipped him. They dragged him in the inner cell 
cuffed him to the wall, and at midnight he's singing with Silas and praising God. That St. Paul, don't be afraid? Yeah. Yep. God did not tell him, Paul, don't be afraid, because he wasn't. I'm saying that right now. In fact, we said in 1 Corinthians, he said, I came in weakness and in much fear and trembling. Are you ever afraid? Do you ever feel like you're alone? Do you ever need to hear the word of God? Do you ever need to hear the voice of God to say, don't be afraid, my son. Don't be afraid, my daughter. I love you. Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking, number two. Don't be silent. Really? Paul's like, worse than me. I mean, people are falling out of the house. He could preach. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. Why? Because he was tempted to stop speaking and be silent because of what was going on. That's the only way I can, uh, only way I can interpret it. Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. I'm with you. Number three. It's what Jesus said in the Great Commission. Go make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Do you think Paul said, hmm, I wonder if God is real? I don't think so. You know what I think? I think when you're discouraged, when I'm discouraged, we question, is God really with us? Discouragement can do that. We can feel abandoned when, when, when we're, we're doing the right thing, when we're about to speak, when we're about to talk about Jesus, when we're looking to build bridges to point people to, to Christ. Should I just give up? Is this really worth it? So don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Number four, no one's going to harm you. Now, if you look down in your Bibles, chapter 18, verses 12 through 17, there are all kinds of problems coming up. Paul is going to face all kinds of issues. He's going to run into a synagogue ruler. Um, he's going to run into Galilee. Look, look at with me in verse 18, verse 12. Galileo was, a prons- uh, was governor of Archaea. The Jews made a united attack against Paul. Didn't you say no one's going to attack and harm you? Well, it looks like a united attack. And they're saying, you're persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul's about to speak, the governor steps up in the sovereign providence, plan, and purposes of God and says, don't touch him. What he's doing isn't wrong. Let him go. What he's doing is wrong. Let him go. That's really important. He's saying, Paul, you can preach the gospel. It's not against the law. You go ahead and do it. You go ahead and you go preach it. Now, unfortunately, Paul had the promise that God, from God, that he would not harm him. <laughs> Look down at verse 17. Unfortunately, that promise didn't go for Sosthenes. See what it says in verse 17? And they all seized Sosthenes. He's the new ruler of the synagogue and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. So the bad news is God makes a promise to Paul Make, that's the good news. The good news is God makes a promise to Paul. The bad news is God does not make a promise to Sosthenes who's just like wondering what's going on and everybody's in a frenzy like, let's beat him. And, and, and then they take him and they beat him up. But there's good news. There's good news. You're going, wow, that ain't right. I mean, he didn't do anything. True. You know what it says in 1 Corinthians 1.1? 1, 1? Let me read it to you. Paul's writing to this church in Corinth a few years later. This is what he says. Paul called by the will of God to be the apostle of Jesus Christ and our brother Sosthenes. That's one way to come to faith. Would have beaten. 
You've got to be thinking, they're supposed to be my friends. They're beating the snot out of me. I think I'm going to try Jesus now because I'm getting beat up over here in the synagogue. Here he comes to faith. So don't be afraid. Keep talking. I am with you. No harm. Verse number five. I have many people in this city. Of all the things that God could tell me, and I think Paul as well, that would be the biggest encouragement is the work will not stop. Right? There are many people in this city. Who's God? Who's he talking about? Not the ones who already came to faith because they already did. And he's saying, go on, go on mission. He's talking about people who God sees and determines their future. He looks ahead and he says, through the preaching of the word, Paul, many will come to faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to this quote from J.I. Packer, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. He says this, we see at once why it was that Paul who faced so realistically the fact of fallen man's slavery to sin and Satan was able to avoid the disillusionment and discouragement that we feel today as it dawns upon us more and more clearly that humanly speaking, evangelism is a hopeless task. The reason, Paul was encouraged, that Paul kept his eyes firm fixedly on the sovereignty of God in grace and salvation, he knew that God had long before declared that my word that goes forth out of my mouth shall not return void unto me, but it will accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. He finishes saying, the results of preaching depend not on the wishes of the intentions of man, but on the will of Almighty God. There are people, you go. And let me add this. We don't pull this out of context, okay? We don't simply just transfer this. That's why we do expository preaching. Looking at context is very, very important. It is true. God has made it very clear. If you belong to him, he will give you that eternal promise that he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. That's true in every circumstances. Though I walk through the valley of that shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. And although we do not know who will come to faith, but I cannot help but God placed you here in this, con- in this country, in this community, at your job, in your school, because he wants to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. We don't know. Our job is to declare, to press on, to be encouraged, to live on mission, to declare and demonstrate the gospel to the best of our ability. And I want to say one last thing. We will move on. God told Paul, no one will harm you. Don't pull that out of its context. We saw the promise fulfilled. Galileo dismisses him. Paul goes on to be persecuted. Paul goes on to be murdered by Nero. There are many Christians all over the world today. You should watch the news that are being slaughtered and murdered for their faith. But I will tell you this. God does not promise that nothing will happen to us, but God does promise every single one of us that not a hair upon our head will fall outside the providence and the will of God. We won't live one day longer. We won't live one day shorter. We won't accomplish one thing more or one thing less than what God has determined and planned for us to accomplish. That promise brothers and sisters, we could take to the bank, as they say. Paul stayed a year and a half left. Now, let's look at the last thing. Let's look at the task. What's your first priority? What's the first thing? 
I mean, God is building a team. It's not ultimately for your good and your encouragement, although that is helpful. It is for his glory so that people see his magnificence, his greatness, his supremacy, his intrinsic value in his salvation at the cross of Christ. And if you just step back from chapter 28, I'll just read it really quickly. Listen, just listen to this, okay, listen. Don't look down at your Bibles. Listen to these verses, and you pick out what the task is. Verse 4, and Paul reasoned in the synagogue to try to persuade the Jews. Verse 5, Paul was occupied with the word of God, which is the gospel, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. He stayed six months teaching the word of God, which is the gospel. Verse 13, this man is persuading people to worship God. Verse 19, Paul in emphasis, went into the synagogue, reasoned with the Jews. Verse 25, Apollos was instructed in the way of the Lord. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Verse 26, Apollos began speaking boldly in the synagogue. You getting the point? Verse 28, he, Apollos, powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing from the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. We have busy lives. I know that. Children, jobs, uh, working hard. I understand that. We have priorities in our lives. There's a lot going on. I worked for 25 years in the prison system. I I wasn't a full-time pastor all my life. But is your attitude, your perspective, evaluation, and outlook something like this? Do you, do you kind of like say, maybe you don't say this to yourself, but if I said, tell me what you did this week, this is what it would be. I got my life. I got my job. I want to be successful. I got my kids stuff. Making sure I take care of all that stuff. I got one or two, you know, cool TV shows I like to watch. Places I like to go. You know, I got, of course, I got some of my hobbies. And then, Lord, if there's something left over after all that is done, maybe I'll put in a good word about Jesus to some of my friends. That's not what we see in the church. What we see is, I'm at your disposal. I have children, I have young children, I have older children, I have an empty nest, I'm single. I'm at, what, I'm at your disposal for your glory, for your mission. Use me wherever you want through all this other stuff so that I can declare how great and glorious you are and the salvation that you have provided for mankind. It's really not always about just time it's about posture it's about attitude it's about perspective of mission folks that's what's happening it is the gospel it is the the empowerment of the church of god's people living on mission with jesus they won't hear it unless we love people and we connect them to jesus look at verse 5 and verse 28 i'll put it up on the screen we'll close with these two verses When Paul was cut loose, look what it says in verse 5. He testified the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. When Apollos was cut loose in verse 28, taught the right way, it says that he powerfully, very last verse, refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. What does that mean? Some people think that Jesus and Christ are synonymous. Some people think that Jesus, uh, his surname is Christ. So in other words, Mary and Joseph Christ had Jesus Christ, like his last name. Um... Maybe you're here and you think that. That's not what it is. Jesus is his human name, Joshua, uh, Jehovah, Yahweh saves, Jesus. Christ is, is his title. comes from the Hebrew word, Mashua. We, we get Messiah. Maybe you hear that in there. The Messiah, it means to anoint, right? Messiah, translated in the Greek, is Christos. I'm not trying to be smart. I'm just saying Christ, Christos, Messiah, that's, they all mean the same thing. It's his title. 
So when Paul and Apollos are going into the synagogue, they're reasoning with the Jews from the Scripture that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christos. He is the, the, the Mashua. He's the one. He's the anointed one. You see, in the Old Testament, they would anoint kings. They would anoint priests with oil. They would anoint prophets, priests, and kings with oil. And in, and in a wide in a wide glance at that or a wide frame, anyone really anointed was kind of like a Messiah. But the Jews for centuries were looking forward to the promised son, to the promised individual who, not, who was not just a merely a Messiah or, or a prophet or a priest or a king, but is the Messiah, the prophet, the priest, the king. And when Jesus was born, they were anticipating this Messiah to come for centuries and if you remember, Jesus says to Ma- in Matthew 16, you remember this story? He says, who do you say that I am? Well, some people say that you are John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah. And he said to them, who do you say that I am? And of course, Simon Peter pipes right in and says, you are the Christos, the Messiah, right? The Son of God, the Anointed One. Blessed are you, Simon or Jonah. My father revealed that to you. I accept that title. That is who I am. I am Jesus, my human name. I am the Christos. I am the Messiah. I am the anointed one. And do you know what Jesus does after that? If you read your Bibles, you'll see that he began immediately to talk about the Son of Man. The Messiah, the Son of Man, would be rejected by the elders and the priest and be murdered. And three days rise again. He said it clearly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke God. You know, you hope he put on a helmet and some knee pads because that's really not a good thing to do. Verse 33, turning him, he said, Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. Why would Peter rebuke God? Why would Peter rebuke the Messiah, the Christos? Was it just sheer stupidity? I don't think so. In fact, what got Peter so upset What got Peter so upset with Jesus is what got everyone upset in this narrative with the mob, with the synagogue. The anger and the hostility was not simply that Jesus called himself the Messiah, but what it meant to them. You see, in their minds, they were waiting for this Messiah to come who would make everything wrong right. He would be a military leader who would come and establish his eternal kingdom now. He would right the wrongs. He would destroy Rome. He would establish his kingdom on earth. And when Paul's preaching that he is the Messiah, they're like, where is he? We're still oppressed. Jesus Christ, in this narrative, in, in this, in this uh, gospel account, took the Son of Man, the Messiah, the one who would reign and rule, and then began to talk about suffering. And those two things together, the sovereign Messiah, Christos, who would make everything right, and the suffering servant that's spoken about in Isaiah 3, he put them together as one person, and it blew their mind. We're waiting for the Christos. We're waiting for the Messiah. We're waiting for the one who will come that Daniel speaks about in Daniel 7, the ancient of the days who will be worshipped. His dominion is forever and ever. We're waiting for him. The one in Psalm 2 when he writes, the kings of the earth will stand and take counsel from the Lord and his anointed. We're waiting for him. But Jesus, you're talking about that mysterious person when you talk about suffering. You're talking about Isaiah, when Isaiah and other prophets wrote about the suffering. 
about how he would be crushed for iniquity. He'd be scourged for our healing. He would be afflicted and oppressed. He will bear iniquity. He will intercede and he will be crushed for our sins. Those two, we want the Christos. We don't want the suffering servant. Away with him. The idea that this Messiah, this Christos, this one that Daniel spoke about, the Son of Man, this cosmic world ruler, this divine figure, was to suffer for sin on a Roman cross made them angry. Because the Messiah was supposed to come, stop the injustices, turn around the curse, bring righteousness and peace in the world. Here's the deal, folks. Catch this if you catch anything. Someday that will happen. He will come back. Jesus is the God-man. He is the king. He is the anointed Messiah. Time will come. He'll establish his kingdom. But right now, this king is going to a cross. Why? Your sin, my sin, requires payment. All forgiveness is substitutionary. You either pay the debt for the harm that was caused by you or to you or somebody else will. You, if you slash my tires, you either pay for them and pay me back or I will pay and have tires put on my car. When someone hurts you emotionally even, physically hurts you and harms you, there's a sense of a debt that's needed. There's, there's a vengeance. There's, you owe me. There's been an injustice and I want payment. You have a choice. You could either, you could either take on and, and absorb that debt yourself or you could talk about them behind your back. And you could slander them and make them hurt like they have hurt you. You can absorb the debt or you can take vengeance out on them. But either way, it's pain. Because when you absorb a debt, when someone has truly harmed you and you release them from them and you forgive them of their sins and and you release them from any vengeance, any debt that's owed to you and you completely forgive them, there is anguish, there is pain. You suffer because you're absorbing the debt. That's on a human level. Forgiveness always entails suffering, always entails substitution. And that's on a human level. So why is it that we can't understand that God himself, who we sinned against, suffers and sacrifices and absorbs the sin debt for you and I on the cross, his son, the Lord Jesus, dying for the debt that you and I owe him? They didn't want to hear that. I want to implore you today. I want to reason with you today. That the, Jesus rose victorious over sin, death, and hell. He is the Messiah. He is the Christos. He will come and, and reign and rule. Everything wrong will be right. There'll be a new heavens and there'll be a new earth. But first, he paid the sin debt that you owe and went to the cross. And when he bore our sins, took our judgment, paid the penalty for our sins that we owe because sin and the uh, debt of sin is always substitutionary. Somebody must pay. Jesus Christ paid that sin debt for you. Now, they didn't want to hear it. I hope you do. Jesus Christ, God, the Messiah, became a man, suffered, took the penalty and punishment, bearing the wrath we deserve to reconcile us to the Father. Don't be like the others who are waiting for something out there to happen. The new world, the, 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 the reign of, of a good government, a better president, a, a better financial situation. Listen, the most And the most important thing you and I need is salvation, forgiveness of sins. Don't reject that like they did here. Some people said, 
I understand what the Messiah is. Paul said, listen, Paul said when he came to Corinth, I know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He's the Messiah. He is the Christos. He is coming again and reigning and rule, but he is the Messiah who went to the cross and was crucified in our place and for our sins. That's the good news. That's the good news. Do you know it? Do you love it? Have you trusted him? And are you living on mission with him? God always calls us in to send us out, to love people, to care about people, to, to serve people and point them to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this large portion of scripture. I thank you for the, the willingness of, uh, of your people here to, to, to give me the time to expound on it. I pray that, I, that I, my words would get out of the way, that you would reign supremely over your word and that Christ would be seen and treasured. And as we sing the song and we respond, let us respond to him. Jesus Christ, our good God and Savior. And we pray by faith, Lord, we ask that you would work in our hearts and draw us to the place of, of, of surrender and the worship of Jesus We pray, Father, that you would turn our hearts, that you would generate faith and repentance, and Lord, that we would trust you and you alone. And God, I pray, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to live on mission. Show us souls who need love. Bring us to people that we can share our life with. And most importantly, Lord, help us to gently and lovingly talk to them about Jesus, who he is, what he has done. And Lord, we pray that many will come to faith. Hearts would be encouraged. You would get glory. We would get joy. In Jesus' name.